I'm coming off my, it's my favorite thing that we do at Wilderness. We call it the Young Man's Advance. And uh, this is a 24-hour experience that a bunch of the older guys have created uh, for college-age guys. We kind of make the cutoff 17 to about 23, that age group, which was the age when most of us needed the most help. You know, we were kind of floundering, doing wild stuff. And what this event really is as its core is an invitation to manhood. We're trying to save these guys out of Neverland, quit hanging out with the Lost Boys, and uh, come join us in becoming a man. That's, that's what this event is all about, and we have a blast. We invite them on an adventure. We do dangerous things. We tell them going in, we're expecting injuries. We're praying for no amputations. So one broken collarbone is about par for the weekend. And one of the things we've consistently seen, and some of the older guys, we really have a hard time, uh, it's heavy, is when we meet these guys and you think, you know, 17, 18, 19-year-old kid, I kind of wet behind the ears, inexperienced with life, but we have found that that is not the case. Normally by the time these guys are 17, 18, 19 years old, they've gotten kicked in the teeth if life hasn't kicked their teeth all the way out. And they have realized that life is hard and that maybe they're starting to feel like they're getting screwed and they, God's playing a joke on them. And the, the reality becomes, man, my life's already facing some hardship. And some of these young men are thrust into things that none of us could have handled at their age, and that's a hard thing to talk through. Uh, but in that, we realize how much they have already suffered. And, and because of that, a lot of them are already dealing with the question, like, if God is good and I'm having to deal with all this bad, do I really even believe in God? Which is kind of the basis for this whole series, and that's actually the argument that I have heard most often against the existence of God, that is, if there's so much pain and suffering and injustice in this world that God doesn't seem to be doing anything about, yeah. Is he real? And so the question is essentially this. If he is good, and if he could, then he would, right? If God was really good, then he would do something about it. And if he really could, then he would. But since there's so many bad things happening in this world that God is seemingly doing nothing about, God either isn't good, he's not loving, or he can't really do anything about it. He's not all-powerful, certainly not almighty. Or he just doesn't exist at all. There's no God controlling this whole universe that we are experiencing. And it's a problem of pain and suffering and injustice that many people have stepped away from faith in God because of this idea. And I imagine that many of you, like me, have struggled with it. And you just need to know, I want to break us out of our shell for a minute. This is mainly a Western problem. Really, this problem's isolated to North America and Europe. If you go to the, some of the most desolate, difficult, poverty-stricken areas in the world, you're often going to find extraordinary faith, not extraordinary doubt. And so as we kind of address this argument against the existence of God, I want to give you a word of caution. And this, you know, if, if you have kind of adopted a woke uh, ideology, this is going to kind of go in the face of that. Okay, so here's my disclaimer on that. If you have ever leveraged suffering in the world to argue against the existence of God or in your personal relationship with God, you ask the question, how could there be a good God with all the pain and suffering that goes on in the world? If you've ever done any of that, proceed with caution. Because when you use other people's pain to build your case against God, that's really insulting. It's insulting. And you don't mean for it to be insulting, but it is. Because for many people, pain has become a pathway to God, not away from it. 
And if you have not experienced their pain, do not hijack or borrow it to draw a conclusion about God. Now, you're free, and I want to give you a pass to leverage your pain and suffering to draw a conclusion about God, but it's insulting to use somebody else's pain as an argument against the existence of God because they might not be doing that. And when you do, you're calling them idiots, and you're saying that their pain led you to something, not them, and that's, that's not a good way to look at things. And this is something that the new atheists are so guilty of, and, and again, I'm not, I know I'm casting a wide net here, but they would say, man, we need to look at all the pain and suffering in the world, and since it's there, there can't be a good God. And I would say, you really need to go talk to all those people. Because many of them would tell you that it was their pain and suffering that led to extraordinary confidence in God, not doubt. So be careful when you use somebody else's pain to justify your beliefs. Because if you go to some of the worst places in the world that have the most people turning to God, it's places like Belize that are very poor, and it is a church that is thriving and faithful. If you go to the poorest of the poor, poorer than poor, Cambodia, India, you are going to find a faith that is growing. If you observe the Coptic Christians who are under, right now, extreme persecution, their faith is thriving. The perfect example of this that I just can't pass on is my buddy Yogi. Yogi sat in the back row here at 11 o'clock service for three years. He's currently at University of North Texas getting his degree in computer programming. But Yogi was born in Ethiopia. And let's face it, if you were going to pick places to be born, it wouldn't be Ethiopia, right? I mean, nobody says anything good about Ethiopia except for the people of Ethiopia. They're just these vibrant, faith-filled, optimistic people in spite of being in the most desolate place on earth. So on top of that, Yogi was born with a rare form of muscular dystrophy, and he was fine until he was about five years old, and then he started having trouble with his legs, began to need crutches. Remember, he's in Ethiopia. There's no sidewalks, no sidewalk. And his life has been extraordinarily hard. And then at 16 years old, he left his family, his language, and his homeland to come to America to attend high school and graduate summa cum laude and graduate at TJC at the top of his class. Now he's at UNT, and the guy's making an enormous impact because I believe, and if you've met him, you would agree, Yogi has a superpower. Okay, you, Yogi has the ability to talk about these things, pain and suffering, the existence of God, in a way that I do not have the ability to do. And I know Yogi's favorite Bible verse because he's told me in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and it says that his power is made perfect in weakness. And you might look at Yogi's story and say, man, that is such a victory over tragedy story or think that is victory in spite of tragedy. But I would tell you, I would make the case, and I think Yogi would too, that it is victory impossible without the tragedy. Yogi's superpower isn't available to men that have good legs. We, we don't get to develop that power. You have to suffer to get that. And if you're tempted to use somebody else's pain and suffering as an argument against God, my buddy Yogi would tell you, because I'm quoting him here, he said, if Christ is willing to use my disability to comfort and heal people with those needs, then that is even a better miracle than receiving one just for me. It's a big deal. So my point in this is to just say pain and suffering is not an argument for or against anything. It's just an observation. It exists. doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. 
In fact, I would say that it's a reminder that we actually need God. And if you're working from logic, which most atheists would, then there's no logical, rational argument against the existence or involvement of God, at least the God that Jesus presents to us in the Bible based on the world's injustices. There's no logical argument against that. Now, there is a very emotional argument. And when someone makes it based on their own pain and suffering, I get that. Like I said, I would give you a pass. How could a good God allow this? How could a good God that loves me let this happen to me? How could a just God let this go? And I totally get that. And I think all of us have enough empathy to understand that that kind of question, you you don't question somebody's personal pain. In fact, if you told me your story, I would give you a pass, and it would be very hard for any of us not to give Yogi a pass if he chose to use his pain and suffering as an argument against God, but he's not. I would not want to argue with you about your pain and suffering. And there is no reason to quit. And there's a lot of reasons to quit believing in a lot of different versions of God. We, we talked about that in week two. There's a lot of gods we need to stop believing in because they never existed. And we talked about the secret service God that does not exist and nobody ever claimed that he did. In fact, here was the quote I used from the second week. A good God would not allow bad things to happen to good people. Since bad things never happen to good people, there must be a good God. Nobody has ever said that. No one ever has said that. Nobody would make that claim. That's not an argument for the existence of God. It may be an argument against that, you know, secret service God that's working behind the scenes that doesn't exist because the Bible never says that that God exists, and Jesus never presented a God like that. So the idea of throwing pain and suffering in the face of God as proof that he doesn't exist, that argument just doesn't hold water. Jesus never said that bad things would never happen to good people. The argument is emotional, it's powerful, it's moving, it's just not rational. Nobody's arguing for that God. And I say all this so we make sure we're addressing the real question because no one claims that there's a God that never allows pain. The real question at hand is the idea of justice, of justice. Christians have never claimed to worship a God that never allows bad things to happen to good people. They do claim to worship a God that is good, holy, righteous, and just, a God that is all about what is right and loving, but there is evil and pain and suffering in the world. And for Matt, for me personally, that doesn't call into question whether or not God exists, but it might call into question whether or not God is just. To me, I think it makes perfect sense to be angry or disappointed in God rather than to believe that he doesn't exist. It makes more sense to be angry than to just quit believing him altogether. There's a difference between arguing for the existence of God and examining your own personal experience. The existence of God is going to be different from your personal experience from God. Here's what I mean by that. This is just kind of bullet point, the classic Christian argument for the existence of God. The classic Christian argument for the last 2,000 years would have claimed, hey, something exists, right? We all agree there. Something exists. Because if you deny that, you're denying yourself. And even if you think it's all just an illusion of consciousness, you still won't deny the existence of that consciousness. So something exists. And then we believe that something can't come from nothing. And we all kind of agree with that, too. And that there is a necessary first cause. And for Christians, we we call that first cause God. That necessary first cause created all that we consider nature, 
which means that that first cause is above, outside of, super or supernatural, which means that the supernatural is possible. And then Jesus came along and performed miracles. He predicted his own death and resurrection. It's historically documented. We, talking about that in, we talked about that in week three. And so here's our classic Christian belief for the last 2,000 years. We believe there is a God who created everything. We believe that Jesus represents that God. And we believe what Jesus says about God and that the scriptures can be trusted. That's the classic argument for the existence of God. It has nothing to do with pain and suffering. Pain and suffering are not an argument for or against anything. What it does call into question is this next big thing. Is the God of Christianity really a just God? We believe he exists, but because of pain and suffering, is he really just? And we see this illustrated with parents all the time. My uh, middle son is having some headaches that we can't figure out. So we took him to an allergy specialist. They're like, it might be caffeine, which he doesn't drink a lot of caffeine. But they're like, hey, cut everything for a month. No Cokes for a month, which really isn't that big of a sacrifice. He probably only gets two or three a week anyway. But let me tell you, for the last two weeks, we're two weeks into this deal. It's been like pulling teeth, man. I mean, he has thrown a fit every time he saw a Coke. He's mad about it, right? And the reality is I'm withholding something for him for his own benefit, he wants it, but at this point, at least for the next couple weeks, it's not good for him. He has to hold away from that. And in that, my son might question my intentions, right? He might wonder if I'm a good dad, but he's not going to doubt my existence. He knows I'm real, right? might be mad at me. He might be disappointed in me, but it wouldn't make any sense to just claim I didn't exist. And that's kind of what this argument does. So here's the bigger question. Why do we assume if there is a God that he must be a good and just God? Why do we make the argument that pain and suffering is proof that God doesn't exist? If, and to do that, we must assume that if God does exist, that he must be good, loving, and just. So why do we assume that? Who told you that? If you just made that up, you can't hold that against God, right? If I just make something up about you, you I, nobody can hold that against you. You never claimed to be that in the first place, right? And here's the deal. The Pharaoh, the Egyptians, they did not believe that the gods were good and just. Caesar did not believe that his gods were good and just. So why do we assume that God is good and just? It's because somebody told us that he was. That's why we believe that. And it probably started when you were a kid. They said, you know, right before you eat, you say, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food, which is weird because it doesn't even rhyme, and you kind of say it like it's supposed to. It should have been wood or hood. But somebody somewhere along the way told you that God was good and just, but where did they get that idea from? We don't get it from nature, all right? Nature's not necessarily good and just. If you don't go outside a lot, just start following Nature is Metal on Instagram. You'll get caught up real quick to how horrible things are out there. Goodness and justice is not a part of the natural equation. They didn't get this idea from the Egyptian gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods. They believed those gods were actually evil and unjust, and they blamed everything on the gods. So if you walked away from faith because of pain, evil, suffering, injustice, maybe it's just the general worldwide stuff that you hear about. If you're doing that, that's not a good idea. If you're doing this based on your own pain, I personally, I, I can't blame you. I'd give you a pass. But if you walked away from faith in God, maybe you wouldn't call yourself an atheist, but you've definitely left pain, faith way in the past. It's not something you're considering anymore. 
I just want you to know you may have walked away unnecessarily. Because the God who believes in justice and dignity for all people, the God that we want to exist, that version of God was introduced by Jesus. Before Jesus, there were gods who kind of took care of their people. like their re- They didn't necessarily love them. They just kind of toyed with them and used them. And sometimes they protected them if and when they made the appropriate sacrifices. But then Jesus came along. And until he came along, there was no concept of a God who just loved everybody on the planet. That, that didn't exist. And we're so used to now, 2,000 years later, hearing John 3.16, right? It doesn't really impact us anymore because we hear it all the time. And John wrote it, and he was there firsthand, saw all of the stuff Jesus did. And he said that God so loved the world, and that was a radical idea. John probably wanted to write, God loves the Jews, okay? That that's, was the worldview up until that point. But he had recognized that God's love was bigger than that. Jesus brought us the idea of a good and just God that everyone has dignity and should be treated justly. That idea was introduced by Jesus in a time when there was no justice or dignity for anybody. The rich ruled over the poor. The powerful ruled over the non-powerful. They went by the golden rule. If you have the gold, you make all the rules. Might makes right. Women had no place in society. Children had no rights. By modern standards, there was no dignity, no fairness, no justice. And it was into that world that Jesus showed up. And he claimed that every person in the world was loved by God. And Jesus' first century followers embraced a God that was good and just in a culture that was characterized by injustice. So if you left Christianity over pain and suffering, pay attention to this. If the Christian God had been so fragile that he could be argued out of existence based on injustice, Christianity would have never made it past the first hundred years. Because for the first 300 years of Christianity, Jesus' followers were persecuted. Christianity was not, found, was not founded on the absence of suffering. And if pain and suffering is your reason for not believing in God, there may be something that you missed. And I told you about John just a second ago. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He was an eyewitness to everything that happened. And he wrote a letter to other Christians. And I kind of started talking about this last week. But in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought... To love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So why are we supposed to love one another? Not because it was like the first century Galilean thing to do. Not because we are a civil and just society. Not because it's the cultural norm. It's because love comes from God. The God love first. God is love. And we show other people who God is with love. So if you were told that there's a loving God, that idea did not originate with you or the person who told you. This concept was introduced to the world by Jesus in a time of extraordinary injustice. Again, this isn't a natural idea. The idea of love, dignity, justice, it doesn't exist in nature. And this is kind of my problem with the idea of evolution. I don't deny that species evolved, dogs came from wolves, genetics, all that stuff. I'm not denying the science on that. 
but I personally reject the idea that we evolved from another species because there's no room for justice in the idea of evolution. In fact, Stephen Hawking, who died several years ago of ALS, a theoretical physicist and cosmologist, he would make this statement about evolution. He says, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution. Because of naturalistic selection, and natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. And my hope is that somehow we can keep from eating each other up for another hundred years. At that point, science would have devised a scheme to take all of us into different planets of the universe, and no one atrocity would destroy all of us at the same time. That's a great you know, vision forward, right? Dr. Hawking was terrorized by the idea of evolution, and he hoped that we could just survive long enough so that we could all go to different planets because there was no way that we were going to survive all on this one together. He recognized that evolution, natural selection, survival of the fittest, that, that system has no room for justice, dignity, equal rights, and compassion. And I've thought about this a lot. If we all evolved through natural selection, then when did it take a turn and we start helping people, right? When did people suddenly have worth even when they were physically worth less than someone else? Like, when did we start taking care of people that couldn't take care of it themselves? That does not exist in the world of evolutionary science and natural selection. In that world, there's no use for dignity or justice. It's completely oblivion undecided, neutral, and all those things, it just, they don't even have a category for that. And so in a world that's just simply science, biology, and chemistry ruled by the laws of physics, there's no such thing as value when it comes to your mind or your will. All that's just an illusion. Natural law knows nothing of justice, love, dignity, and tolerance, and science can't offer up the idea of justice. That only comes from God. And if you take away God, then justice and injustice leaves with him. And without God, there's no standard of justice, there's no standard of right and wrong, and that becomes a very scary reality, because once there's no objective standard for justice, you know what we're left with? This ideal called moral relativism, moral to relativism. There's, there's no such thing as universal morality, it's just my justice, I have my justice, you have your justice, there's street justice, there's Nazi justice, there's KKK justice, I have my justice, you have your justice but don't tell me that my justice is unjust because it's all up to me. That's moral relativism. And when we reject God because of injustice in the world, we don't solve injustice. We just lose the definition of justice. And you might push back here and say, all right, I have a question. Travis, I'm following with you. I might not believe everything you're saying, but I'm tracking with you. What does Jesus say about all this? Well, if the God of Jesus really loves everyone, and is really concerned about all the injustice in the world, does he offer a solution? And the answer to that question is yes, he does offer a solution, but a lot of times we don't like the solution. Third world countries don't really have a problem with it, but first world countries, we don't like it at all. It's a real unsettling solution, and I told you all in the first week, something can be unsettling and true at the same time, right? It's unsettling that your teenage daughter has a boyfriend. It's also true. That's the same thing here. And you might think, okay, God, we don't want you to leave and take the standard of justice and injustice with you. We need some sort of standard of justice to appeal to, something bigger than any of us. Is there a solution for the pain, suffering, injustice in the world? The answer is yes, but again, we don't always like 
the solution because Jesus brought us the idea that God is love. And we love that God is love, right? That we love to embrace that. It makes us happy. It makes us feel good. But God is loving and God is also just. And you got to take all of it or none of it. And that's a real scary proposition. In fact, it creeps a lot of us out. Jesus could not have been any more clear on this subject. But our culture really doesn't like this idea. Jesus taught that in the future there will be justice for all. And the one thing that we accuse God of neglecting. But here's the thing. There's no justice without judgment. We hate that. We don't want a judgmental God. We don't want to believe in judgmental people, right? We don't, we don't like that. We don't like to be judged. But if you want a God that embraces justice, you have to have a God that embraces judgment. There's no judgment. There's no justice without judgment. And if you want something that cannot necessarily exist, there is no justice without judgment. But we all resist the idea of judgment. We don't like the idea of a judgmental God because in our heart, we know that we've all fallen short, right? And this idea exposes my hypocrisy, and I want justice for me, or I want justice for you, but I want mercy for me, right? I want you to pay me back for all the things you did to me, my family, my friends, my country. But I hope that when I stand before God and plead my case, that he gives me a pass. And as soon as we, enter, we, as we introduce the idea that God is a God that has to bring judgment because justice requires judgment, we get nervous. I do. And not for the people that offended us. We get nervous for ourselves. We get nervous for me, and you get nervous for you. And that is why the story of the gospel is so powerful and so overwhelming. God saw the state of this world that he had created. It was created perfection ruined by sin. We had all fallen short of God's standards and our own standards. And he saw that we couldn't keep his standards. But in that moment, God did not send a judge. God sent a Savior. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, even though it's full of evil, even though my people are being treated so unjustly by Rome, even though no one can keep my standard. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. And that is why, if you stepped away from Christianity, you may want to reconsider, because we all want an objective standard of justice, and nobody gave it to us like Jesus. But God, in his infinite mercy, before he chose to judge us, he provided a way to save us. That's pretty amazing. And Jesus told a lot of parables during his ministry. It's just a made-up story to prove a point, and this is one of the really good ones. Luke 18, starting in verse 1, he said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. Verse 4, For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Selfish motives there, right? Verse 6, And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? And that last question is a question for all of us. When the Son of Man, Jesus, when, when he finds people like the first century Christians who said, you know what, we're not really getting justice in this life. 
but we love the God of justice and mercy, and we love the fact that our unjust deeds have been forgiven. And we all want a God of love who cares deeply about justice but doesn't judge us, and that's impossible. And if you reject the idea of God the way that Jesus presented it, you reject the basis for justice. You reject the basis for human dignity, and it's just going to leave you with biology, chemistry, ruled by the laws of physics. And none of that will ever bring you dignity. And your justice will become very relative. But if you embrace Jesus, you get dignity now and justice later. And before you write the entire idea of Christianity off, if anybody ever had a reason to stop believing in God because of injustice, it was Jesus. The man who taught us that all people have inherent value and are worth dying for, that guy, he was executed by the people that he came to die for. Think about that for a minute. Jesus suffered. He was arrested. He was tortured. He was murdered by the people that he came to give his life for. The man whose definition of good and just informs your definition of good and just was treated very unjustly. Evil, suffering, pain, and injustice are not arguments against the existence of God. They're just evidence that we desperately need him. We need grace. We need mercy. And what I'm about to say is a really bold statement, but I believe that if you care about justice, you should want Christianity to be true. Because the evil, pain, suffering, and injustice in this world are just constant, nagging reminders that something is wrong. It's wrong. We all know that. And you don't just have this weird longing inside of you for justice. We long for something that is really unattainable in this experience that we call life. My favorite Christian author is C.S. Lewis, and I've, this quote has held with me for 30 years now. He says, if I find within myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's why Jesus told his followers that we're not of this world. And we're reminded of this every day when all of us in our daily lives, the suffering we see around us, the stuff we see up on the news, we long for what we know could be. We wish for what we know should be. And then we hope for what Jesus said will be. Because pain and suffering, evil and justice, they're not arguments against the existence of God. They're just reminders of how desperately we need him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do need you. I mean, that's just evident. What I'm thankful for the fact is that you're good. You're just. And justice without judgment isn't possible. But you didn't send a judge, you sent a savior. You sent Jesus to make a way for all of us to have a relationship with you so that we can have a standard for all of these things, pain, suffering, justice, injustice. We have a standard based on something bigger than ourselves. It's based on you. And you were willingly, you willingly allowed your son Jesus to die for our sin in our place to save us from that judgment. Lord, if anybody in this room hasn't accepted that for themselves, I would invite them to do so. I pray you would reveal yourself to us in a way that we can't ignore, we can't explain away. And I pray that we would look to your son Jesus as the ultimate solution to the human problem. And we ask all of this in his name.
Amen.